Hello, everyone, and welcome to my kitchen. This is Margaret McSweeney, your host of Kitchen Chat. For those who might be new listeners, I'd like to just take a moment to share a little bit about this show, Kitchen Chat. As many people know, the kitchen is the heart of the home, and it really is the heart of the world. At the kitchen table, we all gather together to learn about life, food, share lessons, share recipes, share friendship, and special family bonds. Each week on Kitchen Chat, an expert on whatever topic, be it an author, a chef, uh, artist, um, professional, will virtually visit my kitchen and share their expertise and even a special recipe. So I hope that you will continue to tune in to today's show as well as check out the podcast on Web Talk Radio. Today, I am just so delighted to invite a very special chef and cooking instructor into the kitchen. She has come in all the way from Italy. Her name is Carmelita Carwana, and she is joining us. And she actually created Cook Italy, which is the longest established full-time Bologna cooking school. And she offers excellent courses for fans of Italian cuisine. And I can't wait to hear about her special recipes. You'll definitely want to stay tuned. And to immediately check into more information about Carmelita, click on her website, cookitaly.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter. And her uh, Twitter is at cookitaly. Carmelita, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Hello. Thank you very much. Lovely introduction. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here. And you're just in from Italy. So welcome to Chicago. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful city. It's lovely here. Great. Um, Mm. I wanted to begin our conversation about where everything began for you with your passion for food. How did you get interested in cooking and especially in Italian cooking? Ah, well, cooking came, uh, you know, a lot, lot earlier than Italian cooking, although uh, growing up on the island of Malta down south in the Mediterranean near Sicily, um, the cooking of my childhood was um, Maltese cooking is uh, very similar. It has a lot in common with southern Italian cooking, especially Sicilian. Um, So I grew up with that, which I didn't think of as Italian. Um, And... um, I suppose I, I, my passion first grew. My mother was a pharmacist, um, and she was a very good cook. And she did a lot of her cookings at the weekends. She was busier during the week, and uh, you know I was in there helping, helping out, and uh, and listening. She was very good. Um, she always explained why you did things, you know, which I found very interesting, and it helped helped you to learn. So I started out cooking, helping my mother in the kitchen. Uh, they're in Malta. And, and you'd mentioned there are some similarities between uh, the cuisine in Malta and in southern Italy. What are some of the um, uh, the common denominators for that? Well, uh, we're close geographically. We're separated only by the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's things like, you know, what grows in, in on the two islands is very similar. So um, in the winter, potatoes and onions, a lot of beans and cereals and legumes. And in the summer, you know, uh, tomatoes and sweet uh, bell peppers and um, uh, eggplants and, and then a lot of fish. 
uh, oranges at Christmas. Oh, <laughs> so the oranges awesome. come, oranges in December, January, February. Um, watermelons in the summer, you know, so the produce itself is, is very similar. Um, and then, you know, Malta was actually ruled from Sicily. So um, a lot of our, we had shared history for about five centuries. So we have a lot in common, uh, for instance, the Sicilian cannoli, which is very well known as the Sicilian cannoli. To me, that was one of my childhood sweets. We grew up with those, um, you know, these ricotta-filled crispy pastry tubes, which are so delicious. So those kinds of things, um, you know, so Southern Italian cooking in a way, when I, you know, tasted it in Italy, it was very familiar to me. Baked pastas, for example, you know, rather than uh, um, pastas, filled pastas like tortellini, which is what you get now where I live in Bologna. Those kinds of things didn't exist. Ravioli was as far as we got. Ravioli filled with ricotta. Otherwise, baked pastas. Yeah. And would you make uh, cannelloni with your mom in the kitchen? Yes, yes. Uh, it, it wasn't. Um, yeah, it had to be quite grown up. Well, I mean, we were little children because of the frying oil. It was a bit dangerous. Yes. So it wasn't until I was older that I was allowed to help uh, with the cannoli. Oh. Um, and then, as I grew older, actually, I have to say that more and more people stopped actually making them. You'd buy the tubes and make the mixture. You'd buy the tubes from a pasticceria, you oh. know, from a pastry place, a baker. And fill, fill them up. When I was more little, my mother did used to make them. And as I got older, I was allowed to be in the kitchen with the hot spitting oil. <laughs> oh, the hot spitting oil. I can hear the sizzle now. <laughs> what, what would you mm-hmm. say your favorite childhood dish was? Oh, uh, my favorite. Probably one of my, you know, memories is, is connected with helping in the kitchen. But one of the things that my mother always made... Um, uh, when she was doing her big cooking sessions of a Saturday and then a Sunday, was uh, meat meatballs. Oh. And what I really liked was we had this wonderful, wonderful crusty bread, which we buttered. That's very un-Italian. You know, there was a British influence in Malta as well. So you'd butter the bread. And, and my mother fried these meatballs, which had cheese in them and parsley and mm. beef, ground beef. And she'd, you know, you held your buttered sandwich open and she plopped one of these hot meatballs on it, which melted the butter beautifully. Then I had to wait, couldn't eat it straight away. But it was just wonderful. Now, that was a kitchen snack, really. Wow. Um, I suppose besides that, trying to think, maybe when we had, I loved leg of lamb for Sunday lunch, when we had leg of lamb or roast chicken, actually. Roast chicken, when my childhood was much tastier than chicken is now, golden and gleaming and uh, and our tradition was to always stuff it with, um, a, again, a ground meat. Uh, it was pork mainly, a oh. pork and herb stuffing inside this roast chicken. That was a splendid Sunday Sunday meal. Oh, that, that sounds good. <laughs> oh, so special memories from the kitchen, the heart of the home, and which became the heart of your world. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes, if you could share with our listeners how did what was your journey like uh, in terms of becoming a professional um, teacher and instructor of Italian cuisine? Well, um, I graduated in um, English language and linguistics from the University of Malta, mm. and uh, my aim, you know, when I graduated was to travel. Mm. Uh, my, you know, in those days, kind of way back, I'm of a certain middle age. <laughs> It wasn't kind of it wasn't the cooking as a career. It just wasn't something that a, gradu- a young woman graduate did. Right. So um, my thought was to travel, and I started uh, off teaching English ah. for adults, uh, for which there's a wide world demand. So that I I lived for in a number of countries, 
Um, I lived and, and taught English in um, Portugal, in Lisbon, the capital, and in Cairo, in Egypt. And then um, I basically kind of worked my way up the ladder, started training people to teach English. I taught, uh, I, I was uh, head of a school in London. After London, I went to Barcelona and finally to Bologna, um, working for a British organization on short contracts, three to four years. Then you had to move on and change country. Mm-hmm. And uh, before moving to Bologna, where I now live, I lived in Barcelona, which is a beautiful city. And I, when I was there, I began to think, well, I'm, you know, I'm not yet tired of packing my bags every three years and starting again in a new country, but I will get tired. Mm. So, you know, I really should think about something else to do at this point in my life. And I got to Bologna, mm-hmm. loved it, and thought, well, this is a place I could live forever, actually. You know, um, having always been quite happy to pack my bags before I got to Bologna. It's a lovely city. Mm. And then when I was there... Um, you know, my thinking was along the lines of, um, okay, so first I wanted to travel. That was what I most wanted to do. And I did it. I did the work and I traveled. And, you know, what is the other thing? That, you know, what else is there in my life that really I'm passionate about? What do I most enjoy doing? Well, cooking. Mm. And the match, you know, between Bologna, for many Italians, the food capital of Italy, and uh, teaching cooking, you know, my background was all in teaching and teaching people to teach, teaching adults, you know, um, it all seemed to fit. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I, I played with a number of other ideas, but this was the one that stuck with me. And when I sounded my friends and family out, they all said, oh, yes, yes, I can see you doing that. That's you. That's, <laughs> you can do it. So, you know, that's how it began. Uh, after, after, you know, a, a long career, actually, you know, an alternative career, um, which took me traveling and, um, and teaching. And so I did my three-year contract in Bologna and then stayed, um, but set up Cook Italy in 1999. I arrived in Bologna in 1996. Um, and so I've been there since 1999, uh, happily teaching people cooking. <laughs> oh, that is so exciting. And I encourage everyone to check her website, cookitaly.com, for information on the courses. And if you could share with our listeners, Carmelita, an example of the menu of not only the courses, but the menus that that everyone will prepare. What are some of the uh, highlights of the courses? Well, um, Bologna is um, is well known. I suppose it's well known above all for its its pasta, which is not. Uh, there are two kinds of pasta in Italy, and this is the northern pasta, which was very new to me. It's made with soft cake flour and eggs. And it's flat, usually, or filled because it's very stretchy and very elastic. It's a completely different texture than the normal pasta like spaghetti or penne. It's softer, lighter, feels lighter. It's richer because it has egg. The other pasta only has water. Um, so all dishes like uh, tagliatelle, which are the, they're called fettuccine and rum, the flat ribbon noodles, mm-hmm. lasagne, uh, Always called lasagna in Bologna. It's only called lasagna in the south. Lasagna in the south. Um, tortellini, which are you know gorgeous little parcels. Yeah. Um, uh, this is what Bologna is known for in Italy above all, but also for its um, cured salt products like Parma type Parma hams and mm. and the bacon's and all the others that go with it. The salamis, the mortadella. Mm-hmm. And for pork in general. Uh, besides that, Bologna is known for a, a large number of fruits and vegetables, from asparagus to garlic to peaches to melons. 
the very end Parmigiano Reggiano, the cheese, the Parmesan cheese, of course, the king right. of Italian cheeses. Right. So with such a rich, you know, kind of, um, it's a very rich cuisine. Um, but above all, what people want to do when they come and do a coquitelli class is learn to make pasta from scratch, egg pasta from scratch. Wow. And so, you know, nine out of ten classes are going to include making pasta from scratch. It might be flat, it might be filled, um, but, you know, that's usually part of it. And then the menu changes according to the seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the menu changes, I customize the classes, I only do tiny groups. You know, my maximum is four if they don't know each other and six if it's a family or a group of friends traveling together on the Bologna classes anyway. And so I usually, you know, um, discuss with them what they'd like to make. Some people have very clear ideas and, you know, what they want to make and what they want to do. And other people uh, leave it up to me. But um, we do three out of the four courses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, an Italian meal has got... Uh, an entree followed by the carbohydrate course, which is in Bologna, it's pasta. In other regions, it might be a risotto or polenta, but for us, mm-hmm. it's always pasta. Um, and then there's a, a, a protein course, which could be meat or fish, and then there's a sweet. So my guests need to choose three out of those four. Um, some people drop the dessert, you know, the sweet. Some people drop the entree. Some, Not many people drop the main course, but some do. And so, you know, we, we agree together what we're going to make. Um, it's very, and I like to vary it for myself as well, mm-hmm. about, you know, because although I feel that if I always did the same menu over and over and over, it would feel like work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I always do different things, work. and I look forward to eating them. And as I say, because it's seasonal anyway, you know, I can't cook the same things in July as I cook in January. Right. And, uh, and so each meal is different. It's very rare. I mean, there are certain dishes like the ragu, you know, the famous bolognese. Yes. yes. That, we, that we make over and over because everyone wants to learn it. But right. otherwise, there's a lot of variety. Oh, now, any secrets to the ragu? Any special techniques? Okay. Ragu is a meat sauce. It is not a tomato sauce. So yes. it's not red. Yes. It's kind of, you know, meat color, the colors of meat, brownish, grayish, slightly right. orangey, because there is a small amount of tomato. Right. But um, I suppose the, the, the main secret is that nothing is actually fried. Hmm. Everything is cooked um, with water, with a little bit of water, a tablespoon or two. So that's, you know, when you're um, softening your vegetables, which have to be tiny, 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 so there's no trace of vegetables in the final sauce. Hmm. Um, you don't fry them. You, know, you never color or brown anything. Everything needs to simmer with water in an emulsion. And, you know, there's a, there's a verb for that in Italian, which there isn't in English. You know, like we have simmer for not quite boil, but we don't have, you know, sofrito <laughs> is the word. We have fried, and, and nothing is fried in a bolognese. Everything is simmered in an emulsion. You have to use those three words, an emulsion of water and, and, and olive oil. In the past, it would have been pork fat, but today we use olive oil. Oh. Lard, it would have been in the past. That's the real, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, people cooked not with butter, not with olive oil, but with pork fat mostly. Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) They could, you know, I mean, they walked everywhere. Nearly everybody walked four hours a day and they had unheated homes, so they could eat pork fat. We can't. (laughs) That's 
true. A little bit of cholesterol. (laughs) Oh, so is there much use of garlic in Bologna dishes? No, there isn't much use of garlic in Bologna dishes. But I should also say that whenever garlic is used, I mean, there is, um, you know, Bologna is the capital of a region which in the west is called Emilia and in the east is called Romagna and it's Emilia Romagna together. And there's. Mm Fair amount of, I mean, there is some garlic in, in Bologna cuisine and there is more garlic in Romagna cuisine. Yes. Uh, but wherever garlic is used in Italy, up and down the entire country, it is always kept in the background. It is, unless it's a garlic sauce, in which case, fine, you can, but, but it's very, at a very minor note, we're very careful not to color it. We cook, mm-hmm. cook it in its skin. We take it out when it becomes not golden, but mm-hmm. blonde. It's mm-hmm. taken out of the dish. And I often say that it's not a, if you go into an Italian kitchen and say, mmm, lovely, I can really smell that lovely garlic. <laughs> if the cook who I was cooking will go into a big panic and say, oh, is it too much? Is it too much? Should I take it out? Should I start again? I'll start again. I'll start again. Do you think I overdid it? And, you know, it's considered something that takes over so easily. Yes. You have to is... treat it very cautiously. Yes. And uh, if I'm cooking, you know, with an Italian friend and I say how much, I've learned not to say how much garlic because they look at you with wide-eyed horror and say, <laughs> well, one, or do you want everything to taste of garlic? Uh, you know, and, and so it's a very subtle use. Uh, it's used with garlic. Yeah, so good breath is there. <laughs> it's, it's, quite, it's quite unusual because, I mean, the, my, the cooking that I grew up with in Malta is very garlicky. And uh, French cooking is very garlicky. And Spanish cooking is very garlicky, but not Italian. It uses garlic cautiously, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that, that's so interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not, I know that there's, a, you know, people think that Italian cooking is very garlicky, but it really isn't. We use it so, so carefully. Yes, and yours is the authentic Italian cooking, <laughs> not what is very Yes, I'm very into, you know, I was, I was um, talking with Lorna, uh, with a friend, my, my yes. friend who's hosting me here, yes. and um, I was telling her how um, what I'm doing is becoming, it's highly appreciated by Italians because um, it's, uh, traditional regional Italian cooking is being first of all reduced. If, you, if I think of Bologna cuisine, it must have, I don't know, 1,500 recipes, of which most people will cook 15 on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole load that's being lost. Mm-hmm. And with, through globalization, you know, many of my Bologna friends are cooking with, they're cooking a bit like any other Western person. Mm. So using couscous, using lemongrass, using ingredients which are not traditional, which are not authentic. Um, So uh, that's an inevitable, you know, it's a process which is inevitable. But they appreciate what I'm doing, which is kind of, you know, keeping up these recipes which are delicious, which have been honed to perfection by generations of women, um, and which which are not cooked anymore. you know, mainly not cooked. It's, it's largely that everybody is reducing. Like Sicilian cuisine is five, six dishes, which are known through Italy. Well, actually, it's probably thousands. Sicilian cuisine is very, very rich. Wow. So, so I'm very much for you know cooking the recipe as was perfected over centuries by generations of women. You know, trying things out and improve. And once, once, once they got it right, that was it. The recipe, you know, which you might yeah. have your little tiny trick, but there is the recipe, uh, and you right. follow that. You know, right. And you truly are the keeper and teacher of traditions yes, in northern Italy. And one um, example of that is taking your students to the market. Is that oh, right? 
you know, um, I, I truly believe it was one of my mother's, you know, maxims that she passed on to me. But I truly believe good cooking starts with good shopping. If you haven't got, you know, good quality ingredients to begin with, if you haven't got ingredients that are full of flavor <laughs> and at their season, at their best, and therefore always seasonal, um, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're an uphill struggle. Whereas if you start with really good ingredients, often there's absolutely nothing that you need to do to them apart from warm them through so that they're cooked in some cases. Mm-hmm. And and so I really enjoy, um, yeah, and people enjoy very much going through the market where uh, part of it is about recognizing and selecting, is this ripe, is it not ripe, why is this fish, you know, better than that one in freshness terms. And and also um, what things are for, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, starting with, people are always surprised how many green how many varieties of tomatoes there are in an Italian market and how many green tomatoes there are in an Italian market. So one of the things that I, I regularly say to people is if I went to one of my vegetable sellers and said a kilo of tomatoes, he would immediately come back to me with a question for salad or for sauce. Oh. And if I said for salad, then he'd say very green or turning a little red. Because generally in Italy, there are two types of tomato the 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 ones which have softer flesh, more easily, you know, reduce the sauce, need to be very ripe and very red for it to be at their tastiest and at their softest. The ones for salad, which are sweet when they're green, there are varieties which are at their best when they're green turning red or green, but not, they're unsaleable when they're very red. For us, a salad tomato, which is a specific group, because it's not just one variety, so a, a particular group of tomato types are intended for salad and should be green. Uh, and so, you know, I explain these things, which surprise people. They've usually sent back a salad for being too green. You know, the tomatoes were too <laughs> When they taste them, they say, oh, but these are sweet. And they are. They're sweet when they're green, but they're firm. Oh. Uh, and that's what we want in a salad, a firm, crisp, uh, crisper tomato, not a mushy one, not a pulpy, mealy tomato, you know, so... Um, have that crunch. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. And then, you know, the cheeses, and we do a tasting of... Um, authentic, traditional balsamic vinegar, which is not a vinegar, and I mean, which is not balsamic vinegar of Modena. And, it's, oh. and we, we, you know, we spend hours in the market because um, there's so much to talk about and so much to see and so much to smell. Oh, <laughs> and what taste. a sensory so, experience to walk to that oh, market. Yeah, it's a big part. It's a big part of the class um, is oh. in the market, the market shopping. And and talking, you know, I, I do a lot of kind of teaching, if you like, you know, in in the market as we as we tour the little old stalls. Oh, and is the market um, year round? Does the weather permit yes, the yes. market to be outside around. year round, or is it inside? Or no, no, it's um, there are various uh, around, but basically, um, food markets have uh, are, are pretty much dying out in uh, in the villages. Mm where, you know, traditionally in the villages you'd get um, the same stalls, you know, the same whatever, 15, 20, 30 stalls, depending, right. um, who would do this, this this village on Monday, that village on Tuesday, that one on Wednesday, et cetera, and go around. Right. So right. Um, what's, what's happened is in the countryside there is space for giant hypermarkets. Mm. And so people... Um, partly grow their own more than in the cities, you know, because uh, it's, it's country places. Right. And partly they shop at the hypermarket once a week to go by car. And so it's not really worth their while, the, you know, the other fruit and vegetable and fish and cheese vendors to do the little villages uh, on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, because they don't have enough sales. 
So in the countryside, the markets have are dying out. There are a few places which maintain a large weekly market, and mainly in central Italy, but a lot of them are dying out. Hmm. However, in cities, um, like most cities have got at least one, but many, like Bologna, which is a sizable, it's about the fourth or fifth largest in Italy, hmm. must have 20 odd, you know, uh, 20 or more markets. One in every, every, So I can... The one that I take people to on my courses is the oldest. It's from the year 1000. Wow. Um, and, uh, and that's where I do the market tour I was describing. But I'm, I'm, you know, from the same spot, I can easily walk to two or three others. Uh, but everybody shops at their nearest market usually, you know, rather than go to another one slightly further away. Right. The one that I shop, that I uh, take people around is mainly, it's a combination actually, because there are these um, little holes in the wall. And so part of the produce is inside behind the wall and part is out on the street. It looks like, it, lo- it feels like a street market, but they're not wheel away stalls. You see what I'm saying? They're little right, shops. Right, right. Um, and, um, and it's year round. And basically uh, the produce changes. There's a certain moment in time, like at the moment it's all the eggplants and peppers and melons and peaches, and then the grapes will come in and then the kind of... Um, um, what else comes in in the autumn? Mm, the mushrooms. You know, the mushrooms will start coming in in September. And gradually things change, and the artichokes will come in October and stay with us, always changing. But And in the winter, you know, you're not going to find, well, you will find eggplants greenhouse grown, which I don't buy. But what's in season in winter is the red radicules, all the leafy greens, uh, the kales, the cabbages, the brassicas, the fennels, um, loads and loads of artichokes, as I mentioned. And so it's just, a, you know, a different set of vegetables. And then you wait for spring and, you know, first come the favas and the peas and the asparagus. And, and there's a certain moment which I enjoy because I go to the market, you know, practically not, not every day, but certainly I'm, I'm there several days a week. And there comes a moment when you say, oh, look, you know, the season's starting to change. We're seeing the first of the next season's produce. Right. And then for a little while, for a week or two, you'll see both, whatever it might be, you know, summer and fall. And then suddenly there's no more summer, it's all fall. And then the same will happen when we turn to winter, and the same will happen Aww. when we And is spring. it the same vendors that are there? Because I, I loved that scene in the movie Julie and Julia. I don't know if you saw yes. that movie. Yeah. I didn't see it. Oh, oh, it's just delightful. And where Julia Child is, is shopping and, and uh, becomes close friends with the fish vendor, you know, and, and becomes a, an expert at all the different produce and everything. You know, you you make friends, especially if you're somebody who knows how to, because they remember you. When they, yeah. if, they, if they notice that you know how to shop, you're remembered right. <laughs> right. Um, by the sellers. And, uh, you know, sometimes I do classes outside. I'm away from Bologna and the countryside of whatever it might be, you know, in Tuscany or in, uh, I've done it in Piedmont and uh, I'm near Malfi region. And, uh, and I, I don't, obviously I'm not there every day because I do these occasionally, unlike mm-hmm. on where I live. Right. And and I'll you know go somewhere and they remember me from two years ago. And I think, why do you remember me? Because you know what you're doing. <laughs> you knew you know, how to choose, and they actually notice and remember. Um, yeah. You know well, what I you know. asked for, and, and then and, and you get better. But you do make friends, you know, with yeah. the vendors, and I learn a lot from them. Um, because I always ask, you know, what's the difference between this and that, and how do I cook this, and is the, which of these varieties of peaches is better, and it's, well, it depends for what, if you want to eat them now or in a few days, if you want to bake them or if you want to puree them, and they have all the knowledge, and they're very happy to share it. 
Um, you only have to ask, speak Italian. <laughs> then ask. <laughs> Right. So, so I, you know, I, I learn a lot from those people, and they are my friends. Uh, oh. You know, we have we have food in common. <laughs> oh, exactly, and and it food was. is the universal language. It mm. really is exactly. And I must say, uh, you get rave reviews from <laughs> the the participants in your cooking well. courses. The TripAdvisor on TripAdvisor, um, you have like the highest ratings. Uh, of, yes, I'm of very appreciative. Yes, you know, I'm very. Wonderful. I appreciate that they take the time yes. uh, to go and write it up, and and uh, I appreciate that they appreciate. You know, I, I always said when I set it up, I didn't want to do just recipes mm. um, because I believe that it, you know, food and cooking, their their history, uh, their social history, their their you know, their information about the environment, about the territory the climate and uh, how people live then, how people live now, you know, um, it's a whole, it really is a culture, the gastronomic culture. Yeah. And so for every dish, I try to you know, tell the story and the history and um, talk about, you know, just little things like how Italians eat, how, how they want to taste every individual thing separately and they won't crowd things on the plates, keep things not touching. And they won't eat, they won't jump from whatever it might be, you know, the fish to the fennel to the potato, but they'll eat all the fish first and then all the fennel and then all of the potato because that way you get more taste. Like one of the things they say is the first, if you keep jumping around, everything is the first bite. Ah, interesting. I did not know there's a third and the fourth. The flavor gets more and more intense. Wow. And, and, you know, just start past these things on things which I, have learned because I live in Italy and I observe and I see how people, you know, eat and um, and you know we're always changing plates so that you don't have tastes from the first thing on the second thing. Everything has to be, you know, you have to enjoy each thing and give it your full attention. Um, you almost listen to your food, you know, to kind of taste it well, to really savor it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I pass on this kind of information, which I, you know, you said I, I get good reviews. I, people appreciate that. It isn't just here is the recipe, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an authentic experience. And and I just love to learn about that concept where, I, I guess, in Bologna, you do not multitask in eating. It is just savor each yes, you Yes, you have to give it kind of your attention <laughs> and you savor um, each mouthful. And, um, uh, you know, another kind of, you know, another way when you see this, when people eat our wonderful gelato, and it really is wonderful. Mm. I'm not a great sweet eater, but I think gelato in Italy is really wonderful. Um, most gelato places are going to have a few chairs or a couple of benches or somewhere for you to sit and eat your gelato so that you can concentrate on it. You know, I mean, actually, I think I actually want to stick, at least claim that it was invented in Italy and in, in Torino in the north, uh, further north than Bologna. But Italians don't want to walk about with their ice cream. They want to sit and taste it and enjoy it and then get up and walk about afterwards. Um, oh, that's It's the same kind of thing, you know, that you, if you're going to taste, taste. <laughs> yes, and enjoy. Now, with all of these wonderful tastes, do you have a favorite dish that you just love preparing and love to savor? You know, the list is endless. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let me think. There's, there's a dish which is simple. Mm-hmm. I can think of two, but I'll do the savory one. Um, 
which is simple and, and uh, you know, in the sense that you, you nearly always can find the ingredients, which is um, a kind of quite piquant um, uh, chicken dish. Uh-huh. I often do it with guinea hen, but chicken's fine. It's actually the, the original recipe was intended for game. Hmm. And, and it's an interesting cooking technique. So you've got your um, chicken or whatever it might be. You could do a guinea hen. You could do, as I said, game. Um, and it's on the bone. It's chopped into smallish pieces. We often um, cook meat on the bone because it's considered tastier. Hmm. And um, it's, uh, the ingredients are this you know, chopped chicken on the bone. Mm-hmm. And then equal amounts, depends on the amount of chicken that you've got. So it's not a huge amount. of. Um, I use apple vinegar. It should be a, a vinegar, a white vinegar, and olive oil. Um, the vinegar is there because it was originally intended for game, and it's a tenderizer. Um, and then besides the vinegar and the olive oil, um, it's uh, sage, rosemary, garlic, and juniper berries. Again, juniper berries in Italy are used... Uh, with game a lot and I always imagine in my head that you know the hunter goes out and hunts and mm-hmm. shoots whatever um, you know birds or whatever fur or feather and then there's juniper growing everywhere and he picks up a branch and the berries from it go into the ditch but it's things that are encountered when he's out hunting wow. so juniper berries are in there sage and rosemary which are typical typically used in Bologna um, uh, and in the north in general, mm-hmm. not much in the south, but sage and rosemary. So you finely chop your sage and rosemary mm-hmm. and you crush the garlic with salt and the juniper berries. And you've got this kind of very, the, the rosemary needs to be very fine because it's unpleasant if it isn't. And you rub your you know, chicken pieces in that. Mm-hmm. And then you put them to marinate with the vinegar and the oil. And I usually say, you know, if it's a farm chicken today, you don't need to leave them there for more than half an hour. But if it's game, you leave them there for a day, whatever it might be, several hours at least. And then you take that whole mixture, everything, everything, and just put it on a pan and cover it. That's why I like it, because it's easy. So you put it there and it simmers with its vinegar and olive oil Mm -hmm. um, for, I don't know, let's say uh, half an hour. You then take the lid off and let all the vinegar evaporate. And as the vinegar evaporates, leaves behind a piquant flavor, it has whitened and tenderized the meat. And then it fries and browns. So the browning is subsequent to the braising, which is completely back to France, you know, from French cooking. Yes, yes. Um, And and the pieces become, you know, the little herby bits form a crispy crust. It becomes very golden, very beautiful. It's very white inside. And it's very tasty. It's a super tasty recipe. And it's, you know, it's not difficult um, in terms of, you know, once you've chopped up your herbs and, and pounded your garlic and then it's, you know, put it in there and then take, transfer it from its glass dish, wherever it's marinating, into its uh, lidded pan. It must have a lid which fits mm-hmm. well so that it can cook with the vinegar and oil together for the half the cooking time and then without for the second half in which, and then it browns and becomes, you know, attractive, if you like, you know, with all the beautiful brown, crispy, right. tasty bits on the outside. So that's wow. it's a chicken recipe from uh, from Reggio Emilia, which is a town to the west of Bologna. So it's chicken alla Reggiana, you know, the same oh as Parmigiano, but with a Reggiana at the end. Wow! Oh, that just sounds so scrumptious, and I honestly have never heard of a chicken dish with juniper berries. So what? Yes, what yeah, is interesting? It's, it's very, juniper, as you know, is the is the berry from which they use to flavor gin. Um, oh. And it has a distinctive, I don't know how to describe it, kind of slightly metallic-y 
Um, anyway, it's what makes it different. You know, the rosemary and garlic, and, uh, rosemary and garlic is a wonderful combination anyway, plus sage, plus juniper. Yes, and does um, it have a purpley tint to it? Does it change the Yes, the, the, the berry is, um, I don't know, like a large peppercorn. It's, it's smaller than an allspice berry, but it's much larger than a peppercorn, and it's softish yeah. skin, and it's kind of, um, kind of eggplant color. Yes. Oh, yeah. which must add a beautiful hue to the to the dish. Mm. Yeah. Not really. No, no not really. It doesn't really color the dish. Um, oh. It's there, you know, um, but it doesn't really color the dish. Uh, okay. The dish looks like a beautifully browned chicken. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it looks like now, that kind there... of color, but the flavors are interesting, and and that piquancy of the vinegar too is very nice. It's gone. The vinegar yeah. isn't actually there anymore, but of course you feel that it's been there. Uh, Wow. When you taste it, so that's that's a little favorite. That sounds great. Now, are there any special garnishes um, that Bologna is known for in terms of, um, you know, garnishing the dishes uh, or the, for the presentation of it? Uh, <laughs> I would say not. You know, my first okay. I was laughing. I was thinking, you know, these are busy women <laughs> in families. Right, right. And, uh, in, I know. I mean, today there's a lot of attention. In fact, I often say to people that, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much for the authentic recipe. Yeah. And then my updating is often to do with, with attractive presentation, yeah. uh, which never bothered anybody very much in the past. You know, just mm-hmm. grateful to have food on the table yeah. <laughs> um, and, and not too worried about how it looked. Um, right. And I think it's still very much... Um, there's one of our. We, there isn't a great kind of chef culture in in Italy the way that there is, you know, in, in the rest of Europe, perhaps even. It's beginning, uh, right. but there was one chef who must be mid 80s now, huh. from Milan, Marchesi, mm-hmm. who um, his philosophy. He, he says uh, he says uh, it, food should be tasty, flavorsome. Um, it should be <laughs> beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it should be simple. And by simple, he means not too many ingredients. Yeah. Because we have this concept that your palate can be confused by too many ingredients. So it should be simple. Fewer, three ingredients is better than five. And five is better than seven. Fewer ingredients so that you can taste each. Each, you know, I was talking about how you taste each thing separately. Yeah. So oh. there you are. Beauty, simplicity, and taste, flavor. But if one of these, if you have to sacrifice one of these three principles, he says, the one to sacrifice is beauty. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's the about garnishes. I think our favorite garnish for pasta is Parmigiano-Reggiano. Of course, yeah. it has to go on most things, not on game usually, often not on mushrooms, never on fish, but mm. on every other pasta, you know, a good old sprinkling, a generous amount of Parmigiano-Reggiano. But other than that, let's say in terms of presentation, this is a contemporary concern, I think. But traditionally, it wasn't really, you know, a big, uh, many, many of the traditional dishes, like there's a wonderful dish. Uh, you'd mention it to any Bolognese, they practically spoon. And it is mm-hmm. onions, which you slice and you wilt for yeah. something like three hours. And for the last half hour, you <laughs> add tomatoes. And that's it. And it does not look beautiful, but it tastes fantastic. Yes, the beauty <laughs> yeah. is within. <laughs> so it doesn't look like anything. It looks like a mush, you know, of onions, yeah. the colored red with a tomato, reddish. Uh, <laughs> but it just smells wonderful and tastes wonderful. So. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> oh, you have just given the listeners and myself just a, a fabulous little appetizer of 
the great uh-huh. cooking classes you offer. I encourage all of the listeners to check into cookitaly.com. You also have uh, cooking courses in London as well. Is that correct? I, I will go to London. I don't actually kind of um, you know run, I don't have a venue where I run courses in London. What I, what I have done in London and will do is if somebody wants to kind of host a cooking class in their kitchen, yes. uh, and then, then we, you know, I'll, and I fly over because it's Europe, I can take a lot of ingredients from uh, yeah. From Italy, you know, to London, because you can take uh, pretty much anything within Europe. Oh, and so I, you know, I arrive with the ingredients and uh, I've discussed the recipes completely, you know, with the host. Yeah. And uh, they've probably done some of the shopping and some we do together. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we host a class um, in in their kitchen for their friends. So oh, that's something I also do, yeah. That is and, so and something I enjoy doing is when people in Italy ask us to organize a custom class if there's a special anniversary or a birthday and there's a family group yeah. or a bunch of friends who want whatever it might be, you know, um, a week in this part of the world on these dates, then I, I, can, uh, I enjoy organizing that kind of thing, too. I love that. And my 50th <laughs> birthday is coming up next spring, so I'll have to start mentioning this to my husband. <laughs> oh, this would just be terrific. Now, besides being a connoisseur of the cuisine, you're also an art connoisseur, so I just wanted to briefly well, <laughs> chat I'm an about art lover. I love, love art. of art. All yes. Contemporary art, but all art. Yes, and where did that um, begin? What? what I sort of began, you know, once again with my parents, um, hmm. uh, you know, being taken to museums from a very, very early age. Yes. And uh, and having, uh, I mean, uh, I was saying to somebody the other day, there were certain names of Renaissance painters that I just like the sound of. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, at that age, I couldn't have pointed out and said, "Oh, that is a Botticelli." Botticelli right. was one of them, and another one which. <laughs> The title was wonderful. Fra Lippo Lippi, Fra, you know, for the priest Friar. Lippi. His name was Lippo and his surname was Lippi. And I just used to love saying that. Fra Lippo Lippi. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so, I mean, I was being exposed to Renaissance as a very little girl. Um, and then just continued, basically. I, I'm a very visual person. That's why, partly why I pay a lot of attention to presentation. I think about the colors and how they're going to look on the plate. And, mm-hmm. and I suppose that's just it. I'm, I, I appreciate uh, how, how things look. I was uh, started off on this route by, by my parents and then continued, you know, through my adolescence and young adulthood and the rest of my life, always going to, uh, to galleries and shows. And um, my time in London was very good for me from this point of view because I think that London museums are very good at putting on art shows which are educational yeah. and and I'd be going from one room to the other and reading and comparing and, and it, I, I'm not art trained mm-hmm. but um, I'm, a, I'm a you know I, I love art right. <laughs> maybe if I came back again and didn't have the life I'd be an artist <laughs> oh, well you are an artist in the artist kitchen, in the kitchen yes sure. where my creativity goes <laughs> exactly oh. mm. and did you enjoy uh, at all visiting the Tate in, in London I love the Tate and I love Tate Modern very exciting space yeah. um, oh. both Tates are very good exactly um, and, and do you have a favorite sculptor at all Sculptor, did you say? Yes. Oh, um, is it Jaume Pensa, who's on show here as well, has a statue here, a contemporary one. But I mean, when I was young, I, I very much enjoyed the classical sculptures like Rodin. I mean, classical. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, I'm, I'm much more into, it's, it's kind of fairly controversial, but for instance, uh, the British Mark Quinn um, oh. and his monumental sculptures of sometimes... Um, 
disturbing uh, people. You know, like the amputated woman he had up on the plinth in the Chicago Square. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't, you know, it's a bit like favorite dishes. People ask me for my favorite artist. It's a list. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. It's not just one um, because I sort of have a very broad palette. I like a lot of different things. But you um, like to savor things one thing at a time. No multitasking in the palate. <laughs> yes, no multitasking. But even if I'm savoring one thing at a time, I like a whole range of different flavors <laughs> in art as well as in uh, as well as in food. You know, I'm not kind of, you know, I couldn't say I I adore and I love the impressionist or I adore and I love. Um, whatever, I'm not, no, no other kind of instant category comes to mind, and German expressionism. Um, I, I like some of this and some of that and some of the other and some of today and a lot of the past. Um, I love contemporary art, but I sometimes worry that people don't look at it enough because I think contemporary art is something appealing and not. And, and I sometimes worry that people won't, young people, I mean, especially young people, won't look enough at Renaissance art, you know, early art. Uh, 11th and 12th century art and all those little details which I like to look at the bottom of a painting where you see all the flowers and the little creatures <laughs> and oh, the little sandals that they're wearing there's so much detail at the bottom of a of an early painting uh, which is gone now oh. and what about in Barcelona you mentioned you'd live ah, there with Gaudi <laughs> it's to go to the Tissembornemitsa regularly Barcelona is great for, for contemporary art yes and also, it was great in terms of uh, what I liked about Barcelona. Today, I did the uh, river, the, the Architectural Institute's river tour of Chicago. In yes. Barcelona, what they had, which was great, was they had this tremendous boldness of putting um, contemporary architecture next to um, Gothic architecture. They put the two together in brilliant ways. They're very visual there. Um, but I, I remember my favorite museum there, there was this, what was it called, the CIC, there was the contemporary one, which I liked quite well, but I liked better, because uh, it went from early to contemporary with this Tissembornemitsa in Barcelona, because I lived there, mm-hmm. I could go often and do yeah. one or two rooms at a time, thoroughly, very slowly, I'm very slow walking around the gallery, but I look <laughs> for a long, long time <laughs> at each picture. It's like it lovely living the there, actually, I enjoyed it very very beautiful city. Uh, very visually, it's hard to find a, an eyesore in, in Barcelona. Um, exactly. Oh, well, uh-huh. I have so enjoyed having you as a guest on Kitchen Chat, Carmelita. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Right. Very, yes. you know, you, you just let me kind of, you know, t- talk about all my favorite things, and you'll be very oh. good to me. Oh, <laughs> well, this has just been it's wonderful. It's lovely to you. And I encourage all of the listeners to uh, visit Carmelita's website, cookitaly.com, book a special event of of, of (laughs) cooking with family and friends as a celebration to gather in the kitchen, because this is the gathering place. And here on Kitchen Chat, I invite you to come back to the kitchen and and just take some moments to to learn about food and recipes and and wonderful things that our guests bring to the table. So until next time, please savor the day.